and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you've found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everyone to season two, episode 25 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. These are the top 10 questions on associate equity we get all the time. I've been taking a lot of calls around the subject of partners, partnerships, minority partners, bringing in associates, all that kind of good stuff. And it dawned on me that maybe we just ought to record an episode on this. So sit back, get your pad and pen ready. You're surely gonna wanna take some notes. And I would recommend a great cup of that meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Yes, welcome everybody once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. I appreciate you joining me on the show today. Whether you're in between patients trying to inhale a sandwich, maybe you're on the treadmill or possibly in your car driving to and from work, really appreciate everybody being in the audience. And our audience seems to be growing a good bit as of late, judging by the downloads that we see. So we appreciate all of you being with us. For those who haven't been uh, along for the ride from day one, um, this is going to be somewhat of a recap type of an episode around the top 10 questions we get as it relates to associate equity. And as I've said on previous episodes of the podcast and in white papers and webinars and from the stage and everywhere else, the pathways to partnership, bringing associates into the partnership of the business uh, and solidifying them for the long haul helps to solve the number one problem of every growing group practice. The number one problem of every group practice is attracting and retaining associates. If you can solve that issue, if you can build a mousetrap, if you can minimize the turnover, it will be better for your sanity as the founder of the business. It'll be better for the financial performance of the business without a doubt. Uh, and it'll be better for patient care and continuity. So getting the solution in place for um, uh, bringing associates into the business, um, bringing them into partnership or, or creating partner status, uh, entertaining them for the long haul is, is really mission number one for you. So here are the questions we get most often. These are not in any rank order of importance or, or anything like that. I've tried to group them loosely together in terms of subject matter, but you know, here, here we go. Um, so one of the things uh, I, I get questions about when um, I have calls with prospective clients and they're trying to solve this uh, associate problem is, okay, I think I understand the, the theories behind, um, uh, you know, a, a, an earn-in type of a model. Um, but, you know, what about day-to-day decision-making? What about uh, control. You know, I own the business outright now, 100% of it. Um, I do what I want. 
um, how much am I going to end up with at the end of this journey if, if I allow them to earn equity in the business? And, and do I run the risk of getting voted off my own island? Um, and, and I get it. I would have those same concerns um, if I were in your shoes and if I had never been down a path like this before. So let me try to dispel some of that. Um, one, let me cut to the chase. Uh, when we build these earned equity models um, for clients, we always want our, our founder or founders to end up with somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of the total business at the end of a 10-year run. We build the models to show associates earning in over time, and the time frame we use is a 10-year time frame because that reflects a 10-year term as if they would go to the bank, borrow a bunch of money, buy their own practice, and pay it down over time. So what we're trying to solve for in that context is an, a, an outcome that has greater economic impact for the associate uh, if they stay with you versus if they go it alone. So it's 10-year time frame. And the reason we, we use that 70 to 80% number for our founders is because that is usually the threshold around any type of uh, super majority status where a decision for the business would, re would require supermajority approval. Supermajority is defined in the operating agreement. So it could be 66 and seven tenths of a percent, meaning two thirds. It could be 70%, 75, 80%. But usually uh, if we can uh, show the founder or founders retaining a collective 70 to 80% of the business at the end of 10 years, um, uh, it ensures that they have de facto outright control of the organization. You're never going to get voted off your own island uh, at that point. Um, so usually that's the the number that we're shooting for from a founder's waterfall standpoint. The other aspect around control, and you've heard me talk about this on a previous episode, is day-to-day -day control or managing member or managing partner uh, status in, in a business. Um, and, and that is the the ability to make day-to-day -day decisions the way you normally would to govern the business uh, or, and or simple majority-based decisions. So um, yes, maintaining control, uh, never getting voted off your own island, uh, and usually the percentage is somewhere between 70 and 80 percent uh, at the end of a 10-year run. So um, the, the, the sort of corollary question to that is, what does a typical associate end up with at the end of one of these 10-year uh, pro formas? Like, what are we trying to solve for from the associate standpoint? That's the second question. And the answer to that is, is really twofold. I answered the first question in terms of percentage for you as the founder. And I, I answered it in terms of percentage around voting control provisions and supermajority provisions. From the associate context, we're trying to, to look at more dollars than we are percentages. Now, the reason for that is, you know, an associate comes into uh, a dental practice or a group and wants to buy into it. And they're thinking in terms of percentages like 50-50 partner or 25% or they have some percentage threshold in their mind. The percentage is one thing, but if you're never going to have outright control of the business, you're arguably more interested in the economic value of the outcome. So let me put that a different way. Would you like to own 1% of Google? I know I would. I mean, I have no idea what that translates into, but it's a lot of money. 
Now, at 1%, I can't dictate anything about the governance of the company or, or anything they do, certainly. But if I own 1% of it, the dollar value of that is staggering. So at the end of a 10-year run uh, for the associate, we're trying to create a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow scenario. So what is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? We are trying to create an outcome for the associate that would eclipse what they could create on their own if they went to a bank, borrowed a lot of money, paid it down over and bought a practice or built a practice, paid down the note over 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, they'd paid off the, the practice loan and it was theirs free and clear. And they had a business asset valued at X something, some dollar amount. It's usually around a million dollars in value. And if we can show that same 10-year journey, earning equity in your business as the business continues to grow and improve operations, and we can create a greater economic outcome, in this case, maybe over a million dollars for them at the end of that 10-year run, why would they want to take on the risk and do it on their own when they can have a greater outcome with you? So the dollar context is what's most important from an associate perspective, and the percentage context is most important from your perspective as the founder. So hopefully that kind of compares and contrasts there. The percentage for the associate, candidly, is probably going to be about one to two to three percent, maybe as high as five percent, but that would be a lot, honestly. So it's probably going to be a nominal percentage, but the dollar value could be considerable. So hopefully that uh, uh, that's a good contrast between the two. Uh, along the same lines, in terms of ownership and percentages and everything, the uh, another question we get is, well, what about voting and, and what about distributions? And this is a good question because it it brings into um, it brings into light um, the aspects around what we call rights and privileges of equity. So uh, ownership in a business, when you have equity, means that if the if the business gets sold, um, you know you you are the beneficiary of that sale pro rata, meaning according to the percentage ownership you have. All right, so that's the equity piece of it. Um, ownership in a business also carries um, what they call rights and privileges as it relates to voting rights and distribution rights. So you can set up different classes of shares that might not have voting rights or might not have distribution rights, DeWalker and I would probably argue against that philosophically. And the reason for that would be that you are trying to um, attract young professionals into your business. They want a seat at the table. One of the reasons they want a seat at the table is because they want to have a say in how the business governs itself, operates the overall direction. They want to feel like they matter. And having a vote means a lot. Now, let's go back to the first question I mentioned, which is uh, the answer to it, which is not getting voted off your own island. I may be an associate in your business and I may own 1% of it. You may own the other 99%. But if I get a vote, that means I can vote however I want on uh, issues of, of consequence. And just because you can outvote me, it's not, you shouldn't, you shouldn't say, well, I outvote you, so it doesn't matter what you think. 
governance is different than that. When you have minority partners, uh, you want to make sure that you're um, building consensus, that you're bringing people along. Um, you know, even if they disagree with you, they're willing to go forward with the direction of the business. And when they vote opposite to what you would want, that's sort of a red flag for you. You need to you need to be able to address that um, uh, from a, a governance standpoint, regardless of what the vote turns out to be. Um, distributions are leftover profit. Uh, that the business is generated on a an annual basis, a quarterly basis, or occasionally on a monthly basis after debt service. And uh, again, for w- you you have the ability to declare distributions, yes or no. And if you do decide to declare distributions, which is a yes, then how much are you going to distribute? You don't have to distribute all the available cash out of the business. We recommend that you don't do that. That you create, um, you know, a, a rainy day fund, cash on balance sheet, gives you some fallback position, some flexibility. You've heard us talk about that before. Um, but suffice to say, if you do declare distributions, you have to declare them uh, for all eligible shareholders. And um, when you do, they are going to receive the distributions again pro rata according to their vested ownership percentage. So. Our opinion is when you bring people into the ownership structure of the business, that the ownership, the, the uh, shares that they earn have full rights and privileges, meaning have a full vote uh, and have um, uh, distribution rights as well tied to it. Um, another question kind of along those same lines is, or the fourth question along those same lines is, what about my perks as an owner? You know, I have family on the payroll. I'm, uh, I run my car through the business, my dry cleaning, my lawn care. Uh, I run a lot of things through the business um, right now, and, and I'm the only owner in the business. So it's a, it's a perk of being the owner, right? Well, when somebody earns equity um, at the same level that you do, they should be privy to the same uh, privileges of ownership that you are. So if you're running a uh, $50,000 Mercedes car payment through the business as a 100% owner, and I'm a 1% owner, I earned into the business, now you own 99%, am I going to be eligible to to run my $50,000 Mercedes car payment through there? That's a great benefit to me, you know, for such a small percentage of ownership, or are we going to clean that stuff up before I come into the business? more than likely you're going to need to clean that stuff up before I come into the business because it does impact distributions downstream. And if you're going to create those types of scenarios, it it arguably needs to be um, uh, uh, share and share alike, so to speak. It ought to be equitable uh, for all owners across the board, regardless of their percentage ownership. So how do you deal with things like that? Usually what happens is people create their own LLCs outside of the business that they run uh, their payments through. They run personal expenses like family on the payroll, car payments, uh, tickets to the pro sports team, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they, they run them through a personal LLC, not the business LLC. Um, and that they still get the same benefits of that. They can uh, take them against uh, their personal income and pay for it with pre-tax dollars, so to speak. And your associates are, uh, have the same opportunity to do the same when and where they want to in their LLCs. So that's one way of kind of 
uh, keeping your personal expenses yours and the same for the uh, associates, but more than likely uh, corporate governance and, and equity, equitability around it would stipulate that you, uh, that you no longer do that unless you're willing to allow your associates to, to have the same uh, benefits. Um, what about, uh, so the next question is, when we're creating earned equity opportunities, uh, do we want to do it at a practice level or a management company? Everybody says keep the management company equity for the founders because that's the most valuable thing, um, which that's true. Management level or DSO level equity does value more highly. That's accurate. Uh, and you want to do everything you can to expand that um, pool of EBITDA and the ultimate valuation of it. So that is the course of action there. Um, nine times out of 10, uh, I would tell you that it's probably better to allow your associates to earn equity at a management company level. So why is that given that it's the most valuable equity in the cap table? The reason for that is kind of twofold. One is a matter of math. So when somebody earns equity in your business, that means you or the founders take dilution. You're allowing them to earn equity. You're not giving it to them. They're earning equity. Um, and if they do earn equity through performance, you end up owning a slightly smaller piece of a much larger pie. The value of the equity that's calculated at a DSO level is substantially higher than at a practice level. So when you take dilution in a segment of the business that's valued more highly, your diluted dollar goes further than at a practice level. Let me, let me say that a, a slightly different way. If I am an associate and I earn $50,000 worth of equity in the business this year, that $50,000 is a lot larger percentage at a practice level than it is at a DSO level. It's a smaller percentage at a DSO level. If it's a smaller percentage of a larger pie, that means your diluted dollar goes further at a, at a DSO level. So especially in a restricted stock unit scenario, while the associates have performance goals that are based around their collections, their personal collections at a practice level, we typically set it up where they earn equity at a management company level. And that ultimately benefits you more from a dilution standpoint. Your diluted dollar goes further. The second thing is it makes things arguably easier on you from a corporate governance standpoint. And what I mean by that is if we all, if, if all of our equity is at the same level of the cap table, we're all interested in maximizing that level of the cap table. And anything that happens at a practice level impacts all of us according to the number or according to the percentage that we own. Whereas if I only own equity at a practice level, what you do at a management company level is kind of on you. I don't really care what happens in the other locations that I'm not a, a shareholder in. I'm just interested in this one where I work specifically in maximizing that value. That's different than if I own equity at a management company level. And now whatever happens downstream in the practices where I don't work, 
does impact me. So corporate governance and, and direction and leadership is arguably easier, a little bit easier if we all own shares at the same level. So like I say, nine times out of 10, we're going to advocate that um, the shares be earned at a management company level. The one time out of 10 that we don't is usually around a de novo scenario. For those that use uh, de novos as their uh, growth strategy, it's important to um, drive uh, performance at a practice level to create equity on balance sheet and to make somebody highly incented to do that. And that is where practice level equity, usually around profits interest units, comes in really, really handy uh, to maximize the, uh, the, the revenue, the profitability, and the valuation uh, at a practice level. So there's different tools in the toolbox that you know are beneficial in different scenarios. So this is not a broad brush, one size fits all. We try to spend time with our, our clients to figure out what they're trying to build and why and what the ultimate outcome is. Um, but hopefully that helps um, you know, as it relates to practice level equity and DSO level equity. Question number six, uh, what about current debt and future debt? Yeah, so this is a, a good question because these are all growth-oriented businesses. Um, and I hate to say it, it, it depends. <laughs> but um, the, the couple of answer, the, the different answers to this are that the existing debt is probably debt that you have personally guaranteed up to this point and you're going to be responsible for um, regardless of how somebody earns into the business. Uh, the second answer to this is what about future debt and growth? Well, that becomes a matter of where the debt resides, practice level or management company. Again, we would advocate for management company, but there's sometimes reasons to do it at a practice level. And then where the people's equity resides. Once again, practice level versus management company. Debt gets paid before equity. We all know that. So if you decide to sell the business, the debt is going to have to be solved first before there's any equity payout. Um, and that can be structured uh, in the um, operating agreements uh, differently according to the outcomes you're trying to create. So this is something we do want to dig into uh, with clients because there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to this. It can be complicated, um, but it's something to consider when you're building these types of structures. Uh, the other sort of ancillary question around debt, and this is really one from a, um, uh, an associate perspective, is, um, you know, will, if I'm the associate, will I be on the hook to personally guarantee a lot of debt when my ownership in the business is relatively small in terms of percentage? And the answer to that is typically no. Um, the reason for that is that most banks, again, this is a little bit unique to banks, but most banks do not require personal guarantee for owners less than 10 or possibly 20% of the business. It's different um, by different banks, but most of the time when we build these earned equity models, it's really rare for an associate to end up with more than 10% ownership unless there's a compelling reason for it. And if they're below 10% and almost all of them are, they won't be on the hook for personal guarantee. So hopefully that, that adds some clarity there. Um, question number uh, seven, 
vesting. What is it and why do we have it? Yeah, so vesting is a, is a complicated topic. Um, but from the founder standpoint, the reason we have a vesting schedule is so that some, some crackerjack associate doesn't come into the business, uh, post a huge um, collection number, blow away their goal, earn a lot of equity in the business, spike the football and ride off in the sunset and say, hey, thanks, doc, I'm out of here, pay me out. Remember, this is real equity. It's, it's not phantom equity. So if, you know, if they leave, then you have to buy them out. And there's usually a, a, a methodology to that on how you buy them out over some period of time. It's in the operating agreement and it's, it's set forth in there. It should be at least. Um, and the vesting schedule is a way for them, uh, if they do blow away their goal through superior performance, that the equity, the, the value of the equity realized gradually becomes theirs over time. That's the retention mechanism. Um, and for you, that's what you're trying to solve. You're trying to minimize associate turnover. So retention is critically important. Now, from the associate standpoint, they say, well, wait a minute. If I put up a, a huge number and I earn a lot of equity, what do you mean it's not mine? Why, why, is, why is there a vesting schedule? And my, you know, my answer to them is twofold. One, from the associate perspective, this is equity that they earned that they didn't have to buy. Now, that's a really, really compelling thing for an associate to become a partner without having to pony up cash. So the, the benevolence, if you will, of the founder to allow them this opportunity is pretty substantial. It wouldn't be fair to the founder if they did earn a lot, spike the football, and then left. That'd defeat the whole purpose, right? So there's, a, there's the aspect of fairness that I think a lot of associates or every associate would say, okay, that sounds reasonable and, and that is fair, I get it. The second piece to that is when the associate himself or herself actually becomes a partner in the business and their equity vests, they're gonna wanna retain high-performing associates every bit as much as the founder would because those high-performing associates are helping that associate increase the value of their shares over time. So it's not just a matter of earning equity dollars. It's about the number of shares that it buys and the value of those shares increasing over time. So the first answer to the question is from the associate perspective around fairness. The second answer to that question is, is from the associate perspective after they become a partner and they don't want people to leave either at that point. So it's a it, it's a good question around vesting, but it's one that um, you have to kind of change your perspective to really wrap your head around it. So I mentioned leaving before, and this is question number eight. What if an associate leaves early or, or leaves period? Early would would um, be around the context of leaving prior to a liquidity event. So if an associate leaves, uh, once again, this is real equity. It's not phantom equity. You or the business has to pay them out. So there is a, a predetermined methodology in uh, the operating agreement, or in, it should be the way we would lay it out, um, that defines how valuation is calculated. And it also defines how the payment mechanism is, is going to happen. Is there something like 20% up front, and then the balance is paid out over a couple of years? Or is it equal monthly installments with a carrying cost as prime plus 2% or something? Um, there's a variety of ways to solve for this. 
And it has to be set out in the documents. What you do not want to have happen is for somebody to earn a lot of equity in the business, then to leave and to have, and for you to have to borrow a lot of money to buy them out. That should never happen. If that does, you're going to encumber the business to more debt leverage to solve that. And that is categorically the wrong thing to do. So what we want to do is create an exit piece. If somebody does you know, move to Key West or something like that, and they don't violate their non-compete or non-solicit or any of that kind of stuff, they leave in good standing. We want to create a vehicle to pay them out over time. And ideally, the business would be able to fund that through cash flow and would never have to take on a loan to do it. Okay. So that is if they leave in good standing. Now that's different um, on the ninth question, which is what happens if I have to terminate an associate? So that's not leaving in good standing. That's, uh, that's us asking them to leave. So this can have the context uh, of, or two different aspects of it. Uh, around the context of termination. Um, and if you terminate a, a partner, um, somebody, you know, a, a, an owner in the business, which you may have the right to do, um, it can be from a standpoint of um, not what they call for cause or not for cause. And cause is defined in the operating agreement. So what's not for cause? Not for causes, hey, we're, we're in an at-will employment state, and this is just not working out, um, and we need to go our separate ways. I wish you well, but your last day is going to be this Friday or today or something like that. That's not for cause. They didn't do anything wrong. It's just not working out. And that happens from time to time, okay? Um, and, and hopefully not very often, but the employee didn't, or the partner didn't necessarily do anything wrong. Okay. But that may be a scenario where you're having to terminate them and you're going to, um, uh, you know, pay them out over the same period of time as you would. And if an associate leaves early, um, that's different than, Hey, you lost your license. I'm terminating you effective today. Or, you showed up uh, under the influence of drugs or alcohol, that's grounds for an immediate termination. Um, you know, there are a lot of other things that are defined as cause in these documents and cause is usually a lengthy paragraph in it, but you get the idea. The, the partner uh, did something um, that compromised the business. We have to get rid of them. So that involves damages. And damages are also outlined in the operating agreement. Uh, is it something like um, uh, pun termination uh, for call? If, if termination is for cause, then uh, there is a 50% reduction in the value of the vested shares or something along those lines as a, as a penalty clause to it. There often is uh, because there's probably some type of reputational risk or uh, damage to the brand or you know, obviously there's going to be turnover. You're going to have to scramble to, to, to fill the gaps that this terminated partner is leaving behind him or her. So there, there are aspects of that that um, have to be solved for in the operating agreement. Um, but if you do have to fire a, a partner, um, it depends on whether it's for cause or not for cause. And if it's for cause, then what the damages are to it. It goes without saying that 
um, in both of those instances, an associate leaving prior to a liquidity event or having to terminate um, uh, an associate or partner, uh, it goes without saying that any unvested shares they forfeit. Again, those are the golden handcuffs. They're probably going to be valued really highly. If they're walking away from that, they're leaving dollars on the table. All right. So any unvested shares they're walking away from, any vested shares, there's a buyback mechanism, a payment uh, mechanism, and there could be damages uh, involved uh, if it's a termination for cause. Question number 10, what if I or we sell the business? Well, you know, if you have the opportunity to, to go to market, you're going to want to uh, involve your, your partners in that discussion. Um, you're going to want to make sure that they're happy with the potential buyer and the opportunities post-sale. Um, there could be further growth opportunities for them individually, be it from an equity standpoint or a professional standpoint or both, hopefully. So it could be a really, really great thing. Uh, typically, in a sale context, any unvested shares are accelerated to vesting status. Um, that's in some of the documents. Usually, uh, it's been left out of others, but I'll tell you, um, you know, common course of, of practice there is to, to vest any unvested shares. You want everybody to be happy at the deal table, and you want them to probably stay on with the uh, uh, with a new owner post sale for some uh, defined period of time. So, you know, that's going to be something where there would be a vote um, uh, of the owners of the business, uh, depending on how it's laid out in the operating agreement. Is that a simple majority or super majority or a unanimous vote provision? I would tell you if it's a unanimous vote, you need to get that corrected because it creates a poison pill scenario and we would never want that. So hopefully it's not a unanimous scenario in your, uh, in your operating agreement. Check that though and make sure nothing's unanimous in there for that matter. Um, but it'd probably be uh, somewhere between a simple majority or supermajority vote uh, to get that done. And, and you wanna make sure that even for those uh, who would be dissenting and not wanting to sell, um, you need to you need to spend some time around that because whoever's buying the business wants to to ensure the continuity of the business. They want to uh, ensure the continuity of the cash flows. They want to ensure the continuity of the key people, especially those who are producers. And that's typically going to be a high performing associate who's earned partnership. So if you've got a dissenting vote or somebody who doesn't want to go along, uh, who's a, an associate that's earned equity in the business, that's uh that's a little bit of a red flag that you need to solve for, I would say. Um, the last thing I'll say, uh, and this kind of compares and contrasts the early exit versus the sale piece, is when we build these um, uh, plans, we usually predefine the valuation methodology in the operating agreement. And the valuation methodology is based around a calculation of EBITDA at a set valuation multiple. Um, and that makes it easy for calculations of uh, earning into the business and for those who want to leave the business prior to a liquidity event, um, it, it offers the valuation methodology for how the value of their shares will be calculated. That being said, whatever the internal valuation methodology is, is usually going to be several turns below what a market-based valuation opportunity would be. And that's good. The reason that you want that is because if the intent is to sell the business, you want the market to set the price. And, and that price is usually 
several turns above on uh, valuation multiple. On the other hand, if you have in the governing document something that says um, market-based valuation methodology, then that's almost an incentive for people to leave early. Hey, if you know if we're building a business and the business values at nine times EBITDA by the uh, by market-based valuation methodology, uh, and my the value of my shares is two million dollars. I may be ready to pull the shoot and get out right here and right now. I don't want to stay around till the liquidity point and take the risk. On the other hand, if the governing documents say it's going to be valued at a six times multiple internally for those who want to leave early, and I know the business would value right now at nine times, well, I don't want to take a discount on it to leave early unless I absolutely have to. Um, so, I need to, to force myself to stay around until the end to realize the full potential of the equity. And that's, a, that, that's something that you need to be careful of in, in terms of how your businesses are valued internally for exit versus market-based um, around potentially ultimate exit, I would say. So I know this was a lot. <laughs> um, it was a lot uh, when we were pulling together these questions, but these are the ones we get asked most often, and, and I hope that you find them to be, um, I don't know, educational or, or from a, a solid recap. And if you do, feel free to drop me a, a line. If you got questions on any of it, I'd be happy to double back with you. You can always reach me at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts around an upcoming event. Details on that and to wrap up the show. Well, that was certainly a lot of fun. I really appreciate you all joining me on the show today. We get a lot of questions around associate equity and boiling them down to a top 10 was a little bit of a heady task, honestly, but hopefully that clarified a lot for everybody in the audience. Um, Suffice to say, there are a lot more questions beyond 10, but those were probably the ones that hit hit most of the highlights and will hopefully address uh, most of your curiosities, if you will. Um, So I I really appreciate you uh, sticking with me on the show um, and listening uh, through all that. Hopefully you got some uh, good education out of it. I want to wrap up today's show um, and just hammer home uh, an additional uh, reinforcing details on um, the group practice summit that's going to be coming up October 5th through 7th in Denver. We are still nailing down hotel details on that. Depending on when this show drops, you might actually um, or it might actually already be uh, live in terms of room blocks and all that. Uh, one thing I wanted to, to specify in, in the closing today, though, is that we are going to limit this thing to about 150 people, maybe less. So we expect it to sell out. Um, Mark Costas is incredibly excited about it, as are DeWalker and I, when, uh, when I announced it from the stage uh, at Mark's Dental Success Summit. Uh, on Friday, June the 10th, it was very well received, um, and and I think the uh, uh, 150 seats will go quickly. For that reason, we're going to limit it to three people per group in terms of attendance, and this is going to be a uh, a summit that's going to be limited to um, uh, non-private equity-backed groups, and we're going to limit it um, to just dentists, our founders, and their leadership teams, not any other industry third parties uh, at this stage, at least. So we'll probably do that in the future, 
Um, and there are some sponsorship opportunities on this one. Uh, but in terms of who's in the audience, we want to uh, try to keep it just to uh, the target audience being founders and their leadership teams for these groups. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of subject matter that hits home uh, for that target audience. It's going to be legal structures, obviously. We're going to talk a lot about equity, equity as a, as a growth, cons- uh, growth capital. Um, we're going to talk about banking debt uh, recapitalization services, certainly associate equity. We'll go through growth strategies on buy versus build. There'll be some personal journeys and a whole lot of other stuff. Um, y'all know that we are we go deep in terms of subject matter, and you should expect that out of this conference. This is not going to be death by panel. Um, If you are really looking to attend a conference and and learn a lot, take a lot of notes, have a lot of things to digest and apply when you get home on Monday, this is going to be a good one for you. It's October 5th through 7th, going to be in Denver. Uh, Check the show notes for the uh, links for registration, and I hope you'll be able to join us. And I hope you learned a lot on today's show. If you do have a question, feel free to hit me back at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.